Welcome to Spirits of Whiskey. We explore the wide world of whiskey through the many colorful personalities who make it, promote it, write about it, and more. With each podcast, Carrie Moynihan, a certified bourbon steward and bartender, and yours truly, Philip Dobar, director of the Cocktail Collection, interview whiskey's most important names. From high-profile makers, blenders, and ambassadors. To out-of-the-way innovators and remote pioneers. Join us as we discover the people and elements that give the water of life its spirit. It is Whiskey Wednesday, October 14th, 2020, and you're listening to episode 18. Today, we speak with Keeper of the Quick, Gordon Dundas, about his work as the international brand ambassador of Scotland's Ian McLeod Distillers. But first, stay tuned for this week's Whiskey Chronicles. It is said to be that the origin of whiskey dates back to 1000 to 1200 AD in Scotland and Ireland ministries that were lacking in vineyards for grapes. Traveling monks of the era turned to fermenting grain mash, which resulted in the first ever distillation of the modern day whiskey. Therefore, it's no surprise that the five regions of Scotland are some of the oldest whiskey producing places on the planet. These five regions include Campbelltown, Isla, Speyside, the Highlands, and the Lowlands. The Scottish regions are divided by far more than lines on a map. Yes, the geography differs dramatically from one to another, but for the purposes of this program, even more striking than what distinguishes the Scottish Highlands from the Lowlands are their whiskies. The Scottish Highlands, a region marked by rugged landscapes, agricultural plenty, and a low population density, is more remote and less developed than the Scottish Lowlands, which, being physically closer to London, have long seen greater economic benefit from that comparative proximity. That said, the Highlands, despite and in part because of their isolation, have long been a whisky powerhouse, and residing in a region less economically diversified than its more southerly neighbor, its residents have been more dependent on whisky production for their economic well-being. While both regions are home to deep and long whisky-making traditions, the differences in whiskies they produce are as distinctive as their topographies. The Highlands distilleries typically produce single malt whiskies made exclusively from malted barley at a single distillery. Most Highland distilleries employ traditional pot stills, which preserve more of the congeners produced during fermentation. Lowlands whiskies, by contrast, are sometimes distilled from grains other than barley, including wheat and or corn, which, of course, renders them grain whiskies. Most Lowlands distilleries, moreover, employ high-volume and high-efficiency continuous column stills, yielding vast quantities of whiskey that are light and vegetal when compared to most of their Scotch whiskey cousins. Single malt manufacturing in the Lowlands, while not at nearly the volume it once was, enjoys a long history. But unlike virtually all other single malts produced in Scotland's other whiskey regions, Lowlands single malts, as is the case with most Irish whiskies, historically are triple distilled rather than double distilled. Among the distilleries maintaining that tradition are Alchentoshen, Blotnoch, and Glenkinchy. Up next, we speak with Gordon Dundash, international brand ambassador for Ian McLeod Distilleries Limited, producers of Glengoyne, Tamdu, and Smokehead single malt whiskies. One brand, Glengoyne, is distilled in the Scottish Highlands, but matured in the Scottish Lowlands, which is unique in that it straddles two of Scotland's five whiskey regions. Stay with us. The Center for Culinary Culture, home to the Cocktail Collection and L.A. Food and Drink Museum, has a YouTube channel that offers a diverse and growing slate of food and drink series, featuring a mix of how-to, lively talk, and culinary entertainment. Already streaming are Culinary Quickies, Le Cocktail Du Jour, V is for Vino, and this podcast, Spirits of Whiskey. Upcoming shows include Cocktails, The Grand Tour, a new series starring Jonathan Pogash, a.k.a. The Cocktail Guru, the award-winning Music and Booze with Mo, featuring Mo Herms and his series of musically-spirited cocktailians, and an all-new wine podcast, hosted by Silver Pin Certified Sommelier Stacy Hunt. We're streaming culinary culture, so please visit YouTube, search for the Center for Culinary Culture, and subscribe now. The Center for Culinary Culture, Telling the story of food and drink, one taste at a time. Today on Spirits of Whiskey, we have with us Mr. Gordon Dundas. Gordon is International Brand Ambassador at Ian McLeod Distillers Limited. Gordon, welcome. 
to Spirits of Whiskey. Great to be on. Great to be on. Really looking forward to it. Great to have you. Great to have you on. It is lovely 9.30 in the morning here in California and 5.30 in the evening there. It's 5.30, 5.38 in Glasgow. On a, uh, yeah, it's a nice day as well. Yeah. So You work in whiskey, we hear. Well, I do. Yeah. I mean, that's lucky to be on a podcast called Spirit of Whiskey. <laughs> well, I would hope. And I work in whiskey. I mean, how did that come about? But yes, I do. I do. And I have worked in whiskey for 17 years now. Okay. So it's been a long time. You're... Tell us how your journey in whiskey started. As a young lad, were you dreaming of whiskey or did you have other aspirations and how did you get from there to here? Well, if I'm honest, I, I didn't have aspirations to work in the whiskey industry when I was sort of a student or I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that point. The underlying theme was I did enjoy whiskey and I put that down to a friend of mine at college or at university who gave me my first whiskey. And he also said to me at the time, he says, now, you can add water to this. I added water to it. It was a strong whiskey. I enjoyed it. And so I had a whiskey sort of, I like whiskey, but I don't really know that much about it. And then in about the early 2000s, I got the opportunity to start working for Whiskey Magazine, Mm -hmm. which is a sort of global magazine along with, I think, Magazine and probably Malt Advocate are the two sort of main whiskey magazines. Of which I subscribe. I do subscribe to Whiskey Magazine. Yeah, and I started working for them. I developed Whiskey Live in the US. So I started to go over to New York and hold whiskey shows and was in Kentucky a lot. So I know a lot of my friends in Kentucky was over in Kentucky three or four times a year. Wow. And then eventually sort of moved on from there and worked for Morrison Beaumore Distillers, which was owned by Suntory at that point. Mm-hmm. So that was Beaumore, Ockentosh, and Glengarry. Sure. And then that became... I went and lived in Taiwan oh, wow. in 2014, which, as you may know, is a huge whiskey market. Yes. The land of Kavalan. Ah, it is the land of Kavalan, yes. Mm-hmm. And Omar. <laughs> Very good. Yep. And then it became Beam Suntory, the big company that it is now. Mm-hmm. And I moved on to Ian McLeod Distillers in 2017, and I've been there for three years. And Ian McLeod Distillers, a Scottish family-owned business which produces great single malt gin, one or two other things. So yeah. Indeed, indeed. Where did you grow up? Where were you born? I'm effectively a Glasgow boy. I'm from Helensboro, which is just outside of 25 miles down the Clyde from Glasgow. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not far from Glasgow, but I've traveled so much and lived all over the world. It's been not all through whiskey, but it's been a great experience for me to do what I do in the whiskey industry, Mm -hmm. which I absolutely love. So yeah, that's my rough sort of journey to where I am now as a... Oh, it's been a rough journey. It has had its moments. (laughs) (laughs) But generally, it's been really, really good. Uh The one thing that is fabulous about this industry, and it transcends it from, you know, Kentucky to Japan, where I've been to Australia, Mm -hmm. to anywhere that makes whiskey, is the people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. The people in this industry, there's a respect, there's a camaraderie, There's an understanding that whiskey is, you know, everybody likes different types of whiskey and no whiskeys are better than any, but they're just different and they have different things. And and I'm a great believer in that. And when you go to Kentucky, I first went to Kentucky and I had a wonderful tour of Maker's Mark in about 2004, 2005 with the late Dave Pickerel. And I mean, what an amazing character and what an amazing guy. And he took me around and we had just like a private tour around Maker's Mark for just incredible. Mm-hmm. Absolutely incredible. So yeah. well, that was one of my most amazing experiences. The reason we titled the podcast Spirits of Whiskey is that it's first about the people. Yeah. The people of whiskey. Second about the brands, because of course the people produce the brands. But first it's about the people and their stories. Yeah. Why whiskey is a thing to them. Mm. And then for those people who don't know that spirits means alcohol. There's that. <laughs> yes. It is a double entendre. Yes. Which many people, I get surprised, that don't. And I'm like, you know, when you go to the grocery store and it says wine and spirits, what do you think the spirits are? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you forget also in America, you know, you use liquor a lot more. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And whereas we don't really use, I mean, if you had a liquor store here, I'm not actually, if you just said you'd opened a liquor store, mm-hmm. no, I don't know actually what most people would think it is without, do you know what I mean? If you just said it was, Whereas we call them sort of off licenses or it's a very odd, just a British stupid thing. They call them off licenses? Yeah, that's what a liquor store is called as an off license. Oh, okay. It's that's like weird. an off premise. <laughs> as in not a bar. As in not a bar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it. Take the liquor away off site. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Right. Interesting. Here we call that off premise. Yeah, similar. But yeah. Off trade. Yeah. yeah. Call it off trade. So what is your 
favorite moment, if you can think of one, other than the Dave Pickerel uh, tour, because that's my whiskey moment. Um, <laughs> yes, what's your favorite whiskey moment? Oh, how long have you got? There's a few. There's a few. You know, we're not on long distance since it's through the internet, so we got as long as you want. <laughs> There's a few. I think the Dave Pickerel moment, obviously. Another one was at a Whiskey Awards dinner in Edinburgh, I think it was. And I was sitting beside a lady called Karen Walker, who worked for Inverhouse at that point. And Bow Blair was the whiskey that happened to be on the table. Mm. And sitting the other side of me was the, the good friends of mine, Julian Van Winkle. Oh. of Van Winkle, bourbon fame. Mm-hmm. And yes. Julian's not a huge Scotch fan, from what I can remember. This <laughs> night's a little bit hazy. Well, um, well, his daughters tend to like margaritas, so. <laughs> indeed, and they didn't start drinking. We had the, the Van Winkle triplets on the show some episodes ago. Ah, right. And they didn't start drinking whiskey until well into their- Adulthood. Well into their adulthood, yes. Yeah. Yes, margaritas are their go-to uh, potion. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, very simply, I remember between the three of us, effectively, this bottle of Bal Blair, I think it was a 38, got, you know, it disappeared quite quickly. And Julian was a big fan of the Bal Blair 38 by the end of the evening. So oh, good. this might not be right, but I think it's the only Scotch whiskey distillery he's visited. Oh, really? And that might have made that up. I can't quite remember, <laughs> but <laughs> it's a great well, story. I have visited that one too. So then I have something in common with him. Never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Indeed. Thank you very much. Right, right. Yes. <laughs> and another one, I think one of my actual, from a pure, just amazing whiskey sort of experience was when I was in, uh, I was working for Suntory and I was in uh this was in February 2017, so just before I left Beam Suntory, and we were at Yamazaki. I think we were at Yamazaki. Mm-hmm. We're doing a session. There was a whole load of ambassadors from around the world. This was with Shinji Fuka, Fukuoka, and he was the master blender for Suntory, and he was showing us a whole range of whiskies. And we did this Mizunara oak tasting, of which it was like a sort of 30-year-old, a 40-year-old, a 50-year-old. And we all picked up this 50-year-old, and we all went, wow, this must be amazing, a 50-year-old Mizunara cask, Japanese whiskey. And we all sort of nosed it and tasted it. And we were all like, oh, this is quite spicy and quite over the top. And it was far too much influence from the oak. And he goes, yeah, mm-hmm. this is how it should not be done. Right. <laughs> and you're like, okay. So, yes, that just sort of proves that, you know, an amazing experience to drink a whiskey that if you actually put it in a bottle, most people wouldn't drink it and you could probably sell it for a ridiculous amount of money. Oh, yeah, sure. Right. You put the number 50 on a whiskey. Yeah, and, uh, and call it all Mizunara casks and put Yamazaki on it. I mean, ridiculous. Yep. But that just shows you that it was all about the quality of the whiskey and it was just that's not how we make great whiskey. And it was one of the really, really interesting sort of stories and a real moment for me. I was like, wow, this is pretty special. Very cool. Yeah. So there's been a few. You have to know when to disgorge. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. What kind of whiskey, and I don't mean brand, I mean single malt or pot still or rye bourbon or peated. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite type of whiskey? Okay. So I've had a few sort of epiphanies, as it were. And one of my major ones was with a wonderful, simple little whiskey that made me experience something that I'd not had before, Rittenhouse Rye. Mm. Okay. I'd never really had rye before, and this was about 10 or 12 years ago. And I was at a whiskey show, and I got a Rittenhouse, and I was like, I've never really tried rye before. And I have been a regular drinker of Rittenhouse ever since. Nice. Because it's just a rye which, for me, is really well put together. It's got that spicy, peppery element that you would expect, but it's not over the top. And I just thought it was a great... So that was my sort of rye moment. Mm -hmm. And for many years, it was among the very small handful of ryes that were in production. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and it was like really cheap as well initially. I mean, I remember picking up a couple of bottles when I was in Kentucky back in 2010 or something, and it was like 20-something dollars a bottle. Really, really not very much at all. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's gone up a little bit since then. But no, really, really good. So I'm, I'm a big rye lover. I love bourbon. I've worked in bourbon. Another great moment in my whiskey career was I had a full day with my colleague, Rob Allenson, who's still at Whiskey Magazine, where we went to Four Roses and we had a full breakdown of the five yeasts, the two recipes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. with Jim Rutledge while he was still there, which was just an incredible experience. So I'm a huge fan of the different variations of Four Roses as well. 
And then, yeah, I like peated Scotch whiskey, for sure. I'm a big fan of that. I really like most whiskies. There's not many whiskies that I'm not a big fan of, if I'm honest. Quite a lot of them. I'm, there's not many whiskies I don't drink, to be honest. Great. Very good. Well, there are several brands that you represent under the Ian McLeod umbrella. Yeah. And two of them, I know, we're, we'll be tasting later in the podcast. But tell us a bit about the portfolio. Yeah. Including the gins, if you don't mind. They are special. They are. They are. I mean, Ian McLeod, it's a very interesting story. I mean, the business has been around since the 1930s. Russell family have owned it since then. And really, it was a business that was at the center of the industry in terms of being, they were brokers, they were bottlers, they were everything except producers, really, mm -hmm. and had a wonderful reputation of being those guys who can deliver products for markets because they could get the whiskey. And that's where the business was sort of started, where it garnered its reputation. And then in 2003, they purchased Glengoyne from Edrington, and that was the first distillery that they owned. And um, we've owned it now for 17 years. So they became fully integrated at that point. Yeah, so there's now the only bit that was missing from the pie was being a producer. Now they were a producer. And this was all about, of course, beginning to envisage producing single malt and the rise of single malt back in the early 2000s, mm -hmm. but also to secure supply of whiskey as well. Sure. So, I mean, Glengoyne's not a big distillery. It's only a million liters a year, so it's not that big. But And then in 2011, that was supplemented by the purchase of Tamdu, which is a much bigger distillery, four odd million liters a year on Speyside. So very close to Nokando, close to Cardew, not far from McAllen. It was bought again from Edrington. And then that acquisition continued with the purchase of Edinburgh Gin in 2016, I think it was. Oh, wow. And Edinburgh Gin was a relatively small but well-respected Edinburgh Gin brand that had been built up by a sort of family business. And that was purchased mm -hmm. and has really taken off in the UK mm -hmm. under the gin boom that we have had in the UK. Oh, indeed. And I think will happen in other countries. And I think there are some six, seven or eight expressions of Edinburgh Gin. We have a lot. Mm -hmm. We have two or three London dries. We've got the classic, we've got the seaside, we've got Cannonball, which is a great, great gin at 57.1% alcohol. So you just have to be careful how you pour it. <laughs> I'd be careful how you drink it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then we led the market with flavored gin liqueurs. Mm -hmm. And we still do with our sort of rhubarb and ginger. There's a rise in gin cordials. They're being they're being reborn. There's a renaissance. Mm -hmm. There is. And so the gin category has been really good to us over the last few years. And, and we're expanding into America and doing more in America with our gin next year and other markets. I mean, in certain areas of the world, gin doesn't really work. So Asia is not a big, but Europe, certain markets, you know, Sweden, Germany, quite big gin areas. Australia, really big gin market. UK, obviously. Uh, so, yeah. And then the final sort of piece in the pie was the acquisition of Rosebank, effectively, from Diageo in 2017. And so that was the purchase in the, of all the brand and the IP and all the remaining casks of Rosebank and the investment in building a new distillery and visitor center, which is ongoing as we speak. So it's a very interesting business in terms of how we've gone from, you know, in 17 years, not having any distilleries to now having three and about to have four. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a really, really interesting business, family run, great, great business to work for. Yeah, That's uh, it's a lot of distilleries for one family. <laughs> it is. But I mean, that doesn't stop us looking at other opportunities as well. And, you know, we're always looking mm -hmm. for something else. And that will be what's the next thing that we will do, you know, innovation and also looking at other opportunities of maybe other types of whiskeys that we can do. There's always something out there. And there's so much What's really exciting in, in America and the UK, there's so many new distilleries popping up. Oh, yeah. It's tremendous. Yeah. And there's people that talk much more about particular aspects of production or talk about yeasts or talk about barley or talk about mash bills or talk about warehousing or wood. Or, mm -hmm. And all these things come together. And we're always looking for something else. And that's the exciting part of our business. So mm -hmm. I love working for them, I have to say. Well, speaking of new opportunities, can you talk to us about Smokehead? Yes, I can talk to, I forgot to mention Smokehead, yes. <laughs> well, Smokeheads, this is a really interesting story because we'd never had an Isla whiskey. We would love an Isla whiskey. I'm sure we would love to have an Isla distillery, but that's a very difficult thing to do. So one of the things that we had when we got Glengoyne is we decided we'd stick our tongue firmly in our cheek and go to the Isla Whiskey Festival in 2005 or 2006, I think it was. And we basically turned up at the Isla Whiskey Festival and we had our front, as I said, with our funny head on, basically going, well, why are you drinking all that smoky stuff? 
why don't you come and drink some of this wonderful <laughs> Glengoyne that's got no smoke in it? So we're in the sort of done in exactly the way it should done. all very fun and friendly and and they had all the distillery managers on the boat that they had moored off Lafroy, I think it was, with a pirate's flag up and all this sort of thing. And they had them all on for a drink. And I think it was all taken the way it should be. And I think one of the parting comments of one of the distillery managers was, well, that was brilliant. Thank you very much. But don't come back next year. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much what sparked that was on the trip home from that was when Smokehead was born. And it was like, well, we have some Isla whiskey stock because of the broking and all the things that we've spoken about. It's like, how do we use it? And it's like, well, we can't play these guys at their own game because they all have this wonderful heritage, you know, Beaumont, second oldest distillery in Scotland. All these other distilleries are doing it so, so well and can really deliver that Isla story. So why don't we do something a little bit different and create an Isla whiskey, single malt, call it from Isla, but actually... Let's just talk more about what it does to you, the smokiness, the way that it has effect. Give it a bit of attitude rather than the sort of history and the which will never win that game because we don't have a distillery. And that was where it became, and it's really, for the last 15 years, has been a brand which has sort of done very well for us. But recently, in the last two or three, it's really taken off. And I think people like the attitude. They like the style. They like the not-for-everyone positioning. And it's really going well. So, yeah, another great sort of brand-led whiskey. But the quality of the whiskey is great. And what's the PPM in that? Oh, we don't talk about any of that. I can't tell you that. Very good. No, no, no. <laughs> so when you get into PPM discussions, that's exactly the point that we, it's obviously whiskey, which comes from a distillery on Isla, but we don't talk about maturation. We don't talk about really what well, we do. We finished, we've got some finishes in sherry casks and rum casks and things, but we don't talk about PPM. We just say it's a very smoky whiskey. So if you're going to call a whiskey smokehead, <laughs> it's not going to be a lightly peated whiskey. Well, I would hope. Yeah, it's a heavily peated. Let's go for 50 and 50 plus, you know? Okay. So, yeah, but it's That's maybe fair. not Octomore okay. PPM level, but it's 50 plus. Well, Octomore you can smell from across the room. Okay. Yeah, you can. You can. Octomore can smell from down the street. What are you talking about? Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, no, not at all. And, you know, again, another good innovation. But, Indeed. you know, and Smokehead really has flown. And we've just released, uh, started off with a finish in sherry casks. Mm-hmm. And now we've done one in rum casks, which the pack just looks incredible. You know, you don't, there's no other single malt that I can think of uh-huh, uh-huh. looks like Smokehead. That's pretty unique. Hmm. I have another question about the portfolio, and it's the two blended whiskeys that are in it. Mm. And whether those incorporate single malts that Ian McLeod owns? Well, we have a lot of blended whiskeys. Okay. So we do a lot of blended whiskeys for certain markets. We do a lot of label stuff. We do a lot of other things. Ah, I only know about the two that are on the website, on the Ian McLeod website. Ah, right. Yes. Well, we have one of our biggest, you know, important brand for us is King Robert, mm-hmm. which is a blend that fights in that lower price point, but it does very well for us. I mean, you know, it's a sort of 600, 700,000 case brand. So, I mean, it's not a small brand by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And so King Robert does well for us in the Middle East, the Far East, in travel retail, in other parts of the world. So King Robert is a big, important part of our business and something that we did for years before we had distilleries as well. So it's a big part of what we do. Okay. We also have another blend, which is a very different proposition, which is called Pig's Nose. And oh, yeah. we've got a whole range of different blends. So there's quite a lot that we do. Pig's Nose is good stuff stuff pig's nose is great yeah and it's called it's soft and smooth as a pig's nose pig's nose why is it called pig's nose why is it called that because it's got a high malt content ah blends are not rocket science well they are they can be rocket science <laughs> <laughs> let me just that that was the wrong thing to say <laughs> having been on a hibiki masterclass, blends are not they are rocket science and they can be but the point is in a very simple way depending on the malts that you use, if you have a higher malt content, so we're sort of 35% on pig's nose, you're going to get a very different style and experience to a blend that's got only 10% malt content. Mm -hmm. And that's the point with pig's nose. It's got a higher malt content, which gives it a smoother taste. Right. And I was in San Francisco last year for Whiskey Fest, I think it was last. And we went into this, I can't even remember the name of this bar. And his house pour was pig's nose. Nice. His house pour of great whiskey bar. He says, it's just a great blend. He says, mm-hmm. I love it. So it's one of those, it's never going to be a very big brand, but it does 
it's a little bit quirky, which a lot of people like. Yeah, there was a big push in the LA market about three years ago, and I got to sample all of them, and they were very special. Yeah. Oh, very memorable. Yeah, no, definitely. We'll be doing more with it as well. So Pig's Nose is going to be available more as well. So yeah, we've got a whole range of different products as well. There's a lot of history in terms of the products that we have, and um, certainly we don't have a lack of brands, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Yeah. yeah. So I'm kind of looking at these bottles in front of me. Yeah. And I think it's time. Okay. First off, they're gorgeous. Yes. And the person who dropped them off said, that's the first I've seen of the new packaging. Ah, right. There you go. Fantastic. Can you talk to us about these two brands, Glengoyne and Tamdu? Yes. So which Glengoyne do you have? Sorry, I can't quite remember which one we sent to you. Uh, the 12. Sure. We have the 12. So you have the red box. Is that correct? Yes. We have Glengoyne 12 and the Tamdu 15. And you have the Tamdu 15. Right. In a red box. Yes. Well, there was no box. Yeah, there was no box. Oh, sorry. Okay. We got unbuffeted glass. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we basically rebranded uh, Glengoyne not about three or four weeks ago, so it's very new. Mm-hmm. Glengoyne, as I said, distillery, just, yeah, it's about 25 minutes from where I'm sitting at the moment in Glasgow, so it's not far from Glasgow. Uh-huh. And there is a wild ghost. There is a wild goose on the label. Oh, on the way to, okay. There is a wild goose, and that's because Glengoyne means Valley of the Wild Geese. Indeed. So that is the name. Uh, that's what the name means. And it's really just due to a lot of migrating geese go through that area, very near the West Highland Way. And a small distillery, beautiful picturesque distillery. Looks, if you could envisage what a Scotch whiskey distillery looks like, Glengoyne is it. <clears throat> and not big, can't expand it at all. The interesting thing, and I'd love to say this is what makes us unique and different, but it's not actually that true, but I'll tell you anyway, <laughs> is that Glengoyne is located on this, right on the southern border of the Highlands. Mm-hmm. So the distillery sits on the north side of a road, mm-hmm. and the road is the Highland to Lowland barrier in terms of border. Oh, wow. And the, the warehouses sit in the Lowlands. Now, I would love to say that because we mature our whiskey in the lowlands and it doesn't make any difference to the whiskey, it's, it's, <laughs> it's 50 yards, but it's a great story in terms of the historical. Sure. You know, I think it's the only distillery in Scotland that actually sits across two of the regions. So what region do they say you're in? Highlands distilled, lowlands aged. Yes, but it is a highland whiskey, yeah. Okay. Matured in the lowlands, for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the th- key thing about Glengoyne is, and the thing that we've really focused on with this rebrand is that when Wherever you go to that distillery or wherever you understand a little bit about how we make our whiskey, you understand how important time is or actually maybe how unimportant time is. And what I mean by that is we all know if, I, if, 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 we, if we were to go to 10 different distilleries in Scotland in a day and we were to explain to some people in Scotland, you know, what was the main difference? Because we all use the same ingredients pretty much. We all use the similar waters. We all use similar yeasts, right. similar barley. So one of the major drivers that's really different is the shape of the stills. That's what drives a bit of the flavor differentiation between one distillery and the next distillery. But one of the things that we focus on is actually how we heat those stills and how the fact that if they're heated slowly and heated up to the boiling point of alcohol, which I'm going to have to go into centigrade here, (laughs) is 78.3, which I think is about 170 Fahrenheit. And you hold it there, you literally simmer you simmer your low wines. You simmer your second distillation. That takes means it takes longer to get through the stills, means more copper contact, more reflux, and more ultimately fruit. More fruity esters develop, and that's really, really crucial to us because, of course, Glengoyne's always been and never has been peated or smoky. So right. that fruity style is crucial. Now, if you speak to Robbie, who's our distilling manager, he says, well, I could speed the whole thing up, and we would be able to produce maybe 1.2 million liters of alcohol a year rather than one, maybe even 1.3. If we went up to 20 mashes a week and we really pumped, we could produce 30% more spirit. But in 10, 12, 15 years' time, the whiskey won't taste the same. And that's the commitment to understanding that time and taking longer to collect your spirit, far less the maturation and all the other aspects of making Glengoyne. Time is, well, it's important, but it's unimportant, if you know what I mean. Right. So there'd be a proportional decline in quality in the long term once you started bottling this. Yeah, and that's because we bottle pretty much everything we do at Glengoyne's for our single malts. So there's a very different, there can be a very different approach if the single malt that you're producing is for blends. 
you're trying to create a different product quite a lot of the time. And I remember speaking to a couple of distillery managers who used to work at distilleries that only produced for blends. And they're like, well, we don't, it's not the same. You're effectively a component here and it's going to go into a particular type of cask. So actually getting it through the system is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're trying to cultivate and create a great single malt for single malt consumption, then you've got to stay true to what makes your spirit unique. Right. Yeah. And that's how we do it at Glengoyne. And that's not every distillery is different. Yeah. But if you're producing a peated whiskey <laughs> and you want to produce a really peaty whiskey, then actually temperatures may have an impact on that. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole lot of other aspects that change the distillation requirements to make sure you maintain your PT elements in your whiskey. Yeah. So every distillery, as you know, is different, but that's how we do it at Glengoyne. It's not to say that a skilled blender can't create magic from disparately sourced single malts mm. that are not meant to be drunk as single malts, or at least not with that intention. And they do it every day. Mm. But yeah, very much hear what you're saying. Yeah. And you know, that's the crux of Glengoyne is that time is honored. We have a range as well from 10 up to a 30 year old whiskey. So we do have a lot of age statements. We do fully mature as well. We use natural color. So when you buy an 18 year old, there's probably 20 year old whiskey in there as well. So mm -hmm. because of all those different aspects, but that comes from the family business. It comes from Leonard, our owner, it comes from the attitude of the business about how whiskey's made. And that's really, really exciting for somebody like me to come and talk about because it's such a great range of subjects, such a great array of things to say, well, this is why we are different to other distilleries or this is how we do it. And this is what's important to us. That's wonderful. Carrie, do you think we should taste this before we move on to the Tom Dew story? I think you should. I already started. I already started tasting it. Okay, very <laughs> good. All right. I've already poured this, I know. All right. Yeah, so the 12-year-old is the one whiskey which we really use in our core range, which uses any first-fill bourbon casks, mm -hmm. which is pretty rare. If you think of the use of bourbon casks in Scotch whiskey, right. there's about 90% of Scotch whiskey is matured in bourbon casks of some form. Right. We use a lot of sherry casks at Glengoyne. We always have done. We always will do. But this particular whiskey has about 20% of its casks that we use are 12-year-old bourbon casks. 20% are European oak sherry casks. So that's the first fill element of this whiskey and 60% 12-year-old casks, at least, that we've used before, so refill casks. So this whiskey, for me, it has a real zestiness on the nose. Yes, definitely. It's got a sort of gentle spiciness on the nose as well, but it's, of course, there's a hint of the vanilla, but there's a richness from the sherry casks as well. I find it interesting how light the color is with all those different barrels that you just mentioned. Yeah, well, I mean, it's natural color. So, and we're using really, really beautiful sherry casks from Spain, which we'll talk a little bit about maybe a bit later. But for me, if I was to say to somebody, there's a few whiskeys you would say would be a good example for this. But if you were to say to somebody, never had single malt before, but I want to try it. This is one that I would go for. Oh, for sure. We have friends down the road at Ockentoshan, a nice lighter style whiskey, different to Glengoyne, but that's the sort of whiskey that you would say. And this is a really good approachable style yes. because of the way that we've done it. And I'm a big fan of this whiskey, huge fan of yeah, it. Yeah, it's not too spicy. It's not too hot. It's very well-rounded. Right. And when you drink it, you get the sweetness further forward in the palate. Yes. So you get a little bit more of that sweetness at the front. That's the American oak coming forward from those bourbon casks. But there's still a bit of that sort of dark, fruity richness, brown sugary element in there, a bit of that oak spiciness. It's very, very rounded whiskey. It's beautiful. Can you talk to us about the barley? Golden Promise. Mm. Not, Not anymore. anymore. <laughs> we don't have to use this so, bit. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. Very upfront about it. We've got nothing to hide as a business. And it's very refreshing. We tell you that we don't use caramel. We, we, we'll tell you the cask makeup. We'll tell you all the things that most people want to know. So, so it's Golden Promise free. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Golden Promise barleys, barleys work in a, they sort of have a shelf life. Mm -hmm. And Golden Promise sort of stopped being used in the early, well, probably around about the turn of the millennium, really. Mm -hmm. So maybe in our sort of 18s and 21s and 25s, they may have been made with Golden Promise. But now, Glengoyne is very much, there's a whole range of different sort of barleys which are used around the industry. And certainly used to be optic in the mid sort of 2000s a lot of optic barley was used but we're using laureate variety at the moment and really when you're producing single malt your major influence and i mean obviously barley can have and it does have an influence ultimately how big the influence is on a final whiskey is up for debate but you're looking for yield in terms of how many tons of 
or how much, how many liters of alcohol you're going to get per ton of barley. So Laureate is what we are using at the moment, which is probably widely used around the industry in Scotland. And it will be it's producing a yield of probably around about 410 liters of pure alcohol per ton. All right. Wow. So that's how, if you go into a distillery and you go, what's your yield? Your distillery manager will go, well, only 408 this week. Or you might go 418 and looking really happy. <laughs> and it's generally, that's the sort of standard figures. Uh-huh. Somewhere between 405 and 420, depending on the quality of the barley, the nitrogen, all those sorts of things. Ah, okay. So that's how we evaluate the barleys that we use. And we're using Laureate at the moment. All right. Very good. And do you use at both distilleries or just at Glengoin? I'm pretty sure we'll be using that across both. Yeah. All right. It was interesting when I used to work at Bowmore, they used to use one variety for the malt that they produce and they used a different variety for the malt they brought in because certain varieties work for different things. Right. Well, I'm ready to go to the second. All right. So let's do Tamdu, shall we? So Tamdu really has been matured solely in sherry casks from start to finish. And that's down to producing that old style sherry Speyside whiskey that a lot of brands don't do anymore because the availability of sherry cast. So we've made a conscious decision with Tamdu to produce less because of the availability of casks, Mm -hmm. but to produce something that is wonderfully premium, brilliant tasting, giving an experience to the consumer that's very different. So when you taste this beautiful 15-year-old, you notice that richer, thicker, Mm-hmm. mouthfeel that comes from the sherry casks. Yep. I have one word for this. It's glorious. It is glorious. It is. It is a fabulous whiskey. And it's bottled at 46% as well, which was really important for us. Simple things as well. The bottle is stunning. Yep. The bottle is based on the Victorian era. It's not a very old distillery. It's only 1897. So we can't talk about being very old. We can't talk about we're not the prettiest distillery in the world. But hey, it doesn't matter as long as you make great whiskey. Do you guys have a tour system going on there too? Nope. You can't visit Tamdu. <gasps> That's really down to a few. We'd rather spend the money at the moment on casks and all those types of things mm-hmm. rather than producing a wonderful visitor center when McAllen is five miles down the road with its wonderful visitor center. And mm. we're surrounded by visitor centers of brands which probably are better known than us. Tamdu is akin to Brigadoon. But I want to go. Can you get private tours by knowing somebody? I'm sure if you were in the area, we'd be able to do something for you, yes. Do you at least have like an on-site where you can purchase? Really? No, we don't even do that. Wow. We don't really have a site where we could... The only time the distillery is open to the public is we do two days of tour during the Spaceside Whiskey Festival, and we sell bottles from our store that we've bottled for that. Wow. But you can wander around the site and you can visit it, but we don't do the $20 two-dram tour. It's just not what we do. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. If you get to go in, you've been you've got the golden ticket. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Well, if you get to go in, if you are lucky enough to get a tour, you get a tour with Sandy who is a distillery manager. Oh, fantastic. And so you will get the full experience, but we're not open to the public. I liken it to Brigadoon. Its existence is rumored. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, absolutely. (laughs) As a whiskey, it really is a stunning, stunning dram. And as I go around the world saying to people, you may not heard of Tamdu, but when people taste it, people are a bit like you've just said, this is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. It's so good. And the conversion rate is fantastic. But Mm -hmm. we only have so many stock. It's on allocation, this brand, pretty much at the moment yeah and we're nursing it down we're a snowball on the top of a hill really and we're just sort of easing over the edge and slowly picking up and it's a really really exciting time for tamdu so it's a brand i didn't even know that much about how do you use the word hill since tamdu means little dark hill little dark hill yes indeed yeah is it dark yeah in a sort of it's got a slight evil connotation Ooh, that word yeah dark in an evil way but uh, yeah, that's what it means. As in a troll, a troll lives thereupon. Yeah, I think that sort of element. Yeah, okay. there's a troll that lives right. there. But it's a, it's such a wonderful whiskey. It's such a great one too. There's something special about the malting floor at Tamdu, is there not? Well, there was. Oh, another. <laughs> another one. I'm behind the curve on both brands. No, not at all. No, no. So when it was owned by Edrington, it was producing malt for quite a lot of brands using its Saladin boxes. So I'm going to explain what Saladin box is, but it was producing malt for McAllen. It was producing malt for Glenrothes. It was a big 
ability to produce malt on site at Tamdu. A Saladin box is very simply very different to a, a malt floor. It's simply a box that you fill with barley. It will germinate and it will be rotated and aerated and all that mm-hmm. normal thing that you would see. But it's done by paddles in a box, and it, it's a big sort of small swimming pool size sort of sort of thing. Oh, so nobody gets monkey shoulder. Nobody gets monkey shoulder. No, that's the point. There is no monkey shoulder and no turning of the barley in. Well, William Grant got monkey shoulder. <laughs> they do have monkey shoulder, yeah. And for those listeners out there, I'm not talking about monkey shoulder by William Grant. I am talking about what monkey shoulder by William Grant is named after. Yes, the physical malady. Yes. Right, which is the physical injury of what this guy's like shoveling this stuff for days on end, how their shoulders kind of start to look like monkey shoulders. Correct. And so, yeah, none of that is there anymore. When we took over the distillery, the cost to bring all that back was just astronomical. So we use a third party to bring in our malt. Understood. So is the whole thing gone or is it just sitting there as it's gone? Yes. It was very ugly as well. So (laughs) it has gone, yes. It's been knocked down and gone completely. But these boxes were being used up until 2008, 2009. So I don't think Saladin boxes have been used up until that's the latest they've ever been used, I think, in the industry. So So can we go back a little bit and talk about the sherry barrels? Is that the only barrels you use or do you finish them in anything else or? Nope. Yeah. See, that's what I thought. So Tamdu, Mm. we went to Spain and we did a really, and I'd love people to, if they can watch the video that we produced because it's a wonderful educational video, far less a Tamdu video. It just explains what the modern day sherry cask. Is that on your website or is that something you can send? We can put that in the show notes. Yeah, we can put them in the show notes. Yeah, it's on the website, but it's also on YouTube. You just type in Spain to Speyside Tamdu. Okay. I'll send you guys a link that you have it. Thank you. Thank you. But I got to go to Spain when we could travel back then. Yeah. In 2018, we went to Spain to see the journey of our casks. And it was incredible to go to northern Spain and cut down a European oak, Spanish oak tree, to understand the air drying of those staves, see the cask being manufactured, and then it being seasoned with sherry. And that hope, and then it comes to Tamdu. I'm going to be fair. That is a six-year process. I'm sure. So six years of preparation of our casks. And so the casks that we use solely at Tamdu are either European oak Oloroso seasoned casks or American oak Oloroso seasoned casks. Those are the two types of casks that we use. That is simply all we use. The American oak, are they refill or they're first fill? Nope. They are newly manufactured casks using virgin American oak that's coming either logs or staves into Spain. Wow, cool. So they go through exactly the same process. They're not a bourbon cask. They've never had any bourbon in them. They've never been charred. They've never been anywhere near a cooperage in America. It's simply American oak that is imported into Spain from America and is goes through exactly the same process, the six-year process, the European oak from northern Spain goes through. So the sherry goes in the cask without being charred, and then when it's discarded, do you char the barrels in, or you just don't char them at all? No. So what happens is, after about three years, having done the air drying of the staves, which is really important, the casks are manufactured in a cooperage, and they're toasted at a much lower temperature than a bourbon barrel. Okay. Um, They're toasted for about 30 to 40 minutes. Both types of oak, two different casks, American, European, They'll toasted for about 30 to 40 minutes. Then the Oloroso sherry will go into those casks and it will sit in there for two years plus and it will go in and out of those oaks for that period. It will take out tannins and unwanted compounds. Then the sherry goes back to the producer that we've rented it from effectively <laughs> and they will decide what they do with it and we will take the casks back to Scotland. So the casks, when they come together in the cooperage, do they use staves from both into one barrel or they keep them separate? No, okay. no. So it's one set of staves in one cask and one set of staves in another cask. So we actually get our European oak from one cooperage. We get American from another. Do you know what dictates the choice of Spanish oak versus American oak? Or is it a matter of supply? Well, hugely, it's supply as well as cost and things like that. So Mm -hmm. European oak is expensive because of, not because of a lack of sherry, because the sherry that we use is being manufactured for seasoning. Ah. It's sherry that is made for seasoning whiskey casks. Okay. It's quality Oloroso sherry, and you can drink it. Mm -hmm. And if you watch the film, you can see it. But it is not sherry that would normally be bottled and sold for 
high dollarage in a shop. Mm -hmm. This has been made for us. And that's why when we give the sherry back after our two years in our casks, they will either decide to re-blend it, to re-season it, re-blend it with younger sherries. They will either make brandy or vinegar out of it. There's quite a lot of things they will do with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My next question is whether some of it becomes spirit. That's pretty much what they'll do with it. And so they'll not waste it. I mean, the Spanish are like the Scots. They'll not waste good alcohol. So that's pretty much how the system works. And it's very good quality Oloroso. But it's been made for seasoning. It's mm -hmm. five, six, five years old average, maybe. Mm -hmm. But it does a job on, and it's Oloroso sherry, officially approved from within the sherry triangle, just beside Jerez. Mm -hmm. So when I first tasted this, yeah, I thought immediately, and I'm glad I was right, 100% sherry barrel. <laughs> yeah. When I started drinking scotch, mm -hmm. I fell in love with pretty much everything Speyside. Mm -hmm. I mean, back then, most things were still in sherry casks yeah. that you could get on the shelves. And as years have gone by, I've been noticing less and less sherry flavor. Yep. Not that it's bad. I still like everything that I'm drinking, but I have definitely noticed less sherry. Mm. And then when I tasted this, I was like, oh, my sherry's back. Yeah. <laughs> Just beautiful. And the legs on it are gorgeous. It's got a great mouthfeel. Yeah. Oh. It's a great whiskey. It's presented beautifully as well. Natural color, obviously. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to color beautiful whiskey like that? No, this is a beautiful amber color. Yeah. It's very... And we decided that what's so great about this whiskey is its maturation that delivers this unique style. And so that's why we did this Spain to Space side video. We did this campaign about everything's matured fully from start to finish. Not finished in sherry, just matured the whole time in sherry. So we have a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old. We also have a batch strength edition, which is a high strength edition. Mm -hmm. But what's very interesting is if I was to deconstruct that 15-year-old and I was to pull out a 15-year-old American oak sherry cask and a 15-year-old European oak sherry cask that would normally be married together for that whiskey, you would see, firstly, the huge difference in color between the two. Right. So the European oak will be darker. The American oak will be lighter. The American oak will bring vanillas and stewed fruits and sort of gentle spice. The European oak, and these are generic flavors, the European oak will bring raisins, dark chocolate, tannins, these types of flavors. Right. And what that really shows you is that firstly, sherry casks are not just sherry casks. But the second thing is that it's the oak that really is the important factor here. Right. And it's the oak that drives the flavor. A lot of people think when you hear the phrase sherry cask, it's going to taste, they think, well, it's the sherry, it's not the sherry, it's the oak, if you know what I mean. Right. And that's really, really important. Yeah. Well, I think it's delicious. Really quick. I don't know if you know how much it sells for here. And then can we get these here or is this a special order? Yes, you can. Okay, good. You can get it in your specialist whiskey store. You can get Glengoyne and Tamdu's are available in, yeah, they're fairly widely available. Tamdu a little bit more specialist because it's not got the same, it doesn't have quite the same availability. Right. But all your stores, certainly around the US, I know there's so many of them. I was looking at, looking at them. We're doing a presentation on the US market tomorrow. So I was looking at them all this <laughs> one. I can't now remember any of their names. But <laughs> obviously, Total Wine, those kind of places. Okay, good. You can get Glengoyne and some Tamdu's for sure. Mm -hmm. But also, I'm a big fan of supporting your local specialist store. Of course, of course. And they will be in there as well. So, And also on Reserve Bar as well. No, Reserve Bar, okay. okay. And what's the retail price, if you know, for America with our... Price point range? Yeah, good point. Now you've got me going. It depends, I guess, which state as well. But yeah. the 12-year-old's somewhere around about the... Oh, I'm really not very sure. I should have researched this. About 60 bucks. Okay. Okay. That'd be right. That's not centigrade. No, that's definitely not centigrade. No, no, no. <laughs> About six. It depends where you go, but I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah. But uh, I think, yeah, somewhere around about that price. Tamdu, quite a bit more expensive because it's such a limited product. Right. Mm -hmm. So, and obviously, tariffs has not helped either. No. I was just going to say, and the tariffs. We apologize on behalf of our fellow citizens. <laughs> well, as I keep saying to when people do apologize, I'm like, well, yeah, but we've done the same to bourbon and here. So, well, yeah, because you're retaliating, which is fine. <laughs> no, no, no. You retaliated actually, but you were allowed to. But my point was, I mean, this is just what shows the short sightedness of it all. You just need to look at what's going on in the world at the moment. Everybody's trying to make the best of a really bad situation. And you have two markets where they have tariffs that affect small businesses like us as a result of Boeing and Airbus. And you are just like, this is what's wrong with the world. Right. I mean, really. When I first found out how come the tariffs went in, I said, wait, this is over airplane parts? I was like, are you kidding? That has nothing to do with us. I know. 
it's quite unbelievable. Yeah. And you're just like, really? Come on. And so, yeah, that's had an effect because we've had to put our prices up. Yeah. So about 60 bucks, 62 bucks for the 12-year-old. We've got a 10-year-old that sort of around about sort of 50 bucks. And we've got 18-year-old that's probably a little bit up from that. But we've got the full range up to a 30-year-old, should you wish to, over $1,000. Wow. Should we used to take out a loan to seek financing? Why didn't you send us that one? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> it, it didn't make out of my house, I'm afraid. <laughs> it's been embargoed. Yeah, it has. But no, and Tam, as I said, you'll find it. It's a little bit more limited, but uh, beautifully presented. Great gift as well mm-hmm. to your cherry cask whiskey lover. And yeah, I think the 15s are around about 140 bucks, something like that. Wow. I have to say it tastes that way. Yes, it does. <laughs> it absolutely does. It's not your average 15-year-old. Yeah. It's a very, very beautifully crafted whiskey. It's a prodigy. It is. Mm-hmm. It is. And I've been drinking these since you sent them because I had to package some of it to go over to Chef Louise. So I was like, well, they're already open. So, and I can hardly put the 15 down. It is so. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, it's exceptional. Yeah, it's beautiful. So it's a joy to represent these brands and, and everybody who at, in our little family business that puts in their hard work of making them. It's a great team effort to produce really good quality whiskey, mm. which we're overjoyed about. Yeah. Shall we talk cocktails? We shall. Okay. Cocktails. Cocktails. I love a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> I love a cocktail. What is your go-to? What are your go-tos? Have you a category? Is it a stirred aromatic, as is the case with, I think, most of our guests? Or talk to us. I'm a very simple cocktail guy. I come from Glasgow where a gin and tonic is a cocktail or was. Mm -hmm. It still is. It still is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, my favorite, I love the highball. I wish the world would take the highball and run with it more than they do the whiskey world. Okay. That's not an answer we get very often. Yeah. The whiskey highball is one of the best possible drinks you could ever have if you pick the right malt. I'm going to agree with you on that. So even the, the Glengoyne 12-year-old is a great one. Yeah. You need a lighter style whiskey. I would not use a Tamdu 15. Oh, no. But you need a lighter bourbon matured. I would not put a Tamdu 15 with anything. No. Just by itself. No, I'd agree. But that sort of lighter, sort of zestier style whiskey works really well with some quality soda, some lovely ice in a tall glass. That is whiskey heaven for me. Mm-hmm. And again, it comes a bit out of my Suntory time. Oh, Suntory is very big on the highballing their whiskeys. Yes, they are. Yes. Huge on highball. And, you know, they produce some lovely highballs in Japan, whether it's a Nika highball or a Suntory highball, a Kakubin or a just wonderful, wonderful drink. It really is such a great way to drink whiskey. And so I'm a huge highball fan and I'm a big whiskey sour fan. Wow. If I'm honest, I love a whiskey sour with the egg white and all that in it. It's just mm-hmm. my, I just, one of my go-to drinks. I like that sort of soury style. Cool. And my key thing about a whiskey cocktail is make it with whiskey that's that you can still taste at the end. Oh, sure. Yes. Sure, sure. You know, and I think what's great is a lot of the places that I spend, they really are, and some of these mixologists now totally understand the whiskey so well that they can produce a cocktail that just raises certain aspects of the whiskey taste and you're just like that is incredible it enhances it indeed yeah exactly yeah you know they say never cook with the wine you wouldn't drink (laughs) yeah never cocktail with the spirit you wouldn't drink no absolutely absolutely right and you know bourbon cocktails you know the bourbon's very sort of bold in its flavor and scotch generally a little bit more reserved in its sort of style if you're working really really from a high-end cocktail, even a cask strength scotch can really deliver something that is pretty spectacular in a fairly, in maybe even a more historically American-style cocktail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, just great whiskey. And also, I also had once, and I have to say this was a, an experience that I, one of my favorite cocktails I ever had was in a bar in Frankfurt, and it's called Rumors. It's a hotel. It's called Rumors. Was it Frankfurt, Kentucky or Frankfurt, Germany? No, no, Frankfurt, Germany. Frankfurt, Germany. Okay. Frankfurt, Germany. Yeah. And it's basically a circular bar. And I sort of challenged these guys to make a cocktail with a a whiskey I was representing at the time. And this guy came up to me and said, try this. And it was a Bowmore 15. So it was a Bowmore that I was drinking at the time Mm -hmm. or talking about, which was a sherry cask finish. So uh, finished in sherry cask. And it was a Bowmore 15 Negroni. Uh. Oh, no, I love a Negroni (laughs) at the best of times. But that's the best Negroni I've ever had. I had one with a couple of nights ago. Yeah. It's such a great taste of Negroni. Yeah. 
Indeed. So yeah, I'm a big guy. I like my cocktails too, for sure. Uh huh. Uh huh. So, do you drink cocktails more often than neat? Or not recently, <laughs> just because I've not had the opportunity because of what's been going on. But no, I'm probably still a little bit more neat because I don't particularly make cocktails at home. I like the experience of going to a bar and someone making me a fantastic cocktail. So that's how I drink a cocktail. Yeah, that's always fun. Yeah. Awesome. There's very definitely a hospitality dimension to the cocktail. Oh, yeah. That cannot be replicated at home. Oh, no, no, definitely, definitely. True. And I think that whole art form of making a great cocktail and watching somebody make it, and even, as I said, if you go back to the simple highball, you go to a whiskey bar and they're there with, they've got the clear ice that you can see through and they're Mm -hmm. chopping it into a block that fits perfectly in the glass. Yeah. You're transfixed by watching it, whereas... Oh, yes. Pulling the ice cubes out the freezer at home, it's not quite the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I always wanted to get one of those ice block things yeah. with the copper or whatever it is that just melts it down and has this beautiful clear ball. Instead, I have these ice trays that have giant things. But when you take them out, I'm like, eh, it's all foggy. Yeah. It's not pretty. And then the pouring so. of the soda or the tonic water down the length of the bar spoon. Oh, uh, yeah. That's good theater. That's good theater. Exactly. Whereas if I did that at home, it'd be on the floor and up the walls. I miss civilization. (laughs) Yeah. And so the cocktail for me is very much as it should be, I think, in that high is that it's a bit of theater. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Well, these are both theatrical whiskeys. Yeah. These fit the bill. For sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're both very different, but they're both made by the same people and it's different teams, but the same family. And we're proud of what we produce. We're proud of the whiskeys that we produce, which ultimately means that they're great quality. So, right. yeah, it's a great little, it's not even a very little business. It's a great business to work with. So. <laughs> little mom and pop shop. Yeah. Gordon, this has been a delight. Absolutely. It's been fantastic to catch up with you guys. Thank you for taking the time. It has been wonderful. I'm so glad that you could uh, meet with us at a time that worked out where it wasn't too early and not too late for you. So. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, what is it, 1045 with you now? Yep, yep. Hi. We're glad you're not in Siberia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. No, I'm glad we could do it, and I'm glad the samples arrived. Please enjoy them. They're great whiskeys. I definitely have been. I don't know how much longer they'll last, actually. <laughs> I just I just cracked both, so I, I will be nursing these. Uh, he gets it easy because I always have to give our samples to Louise, and it, once I open it, then I'm like, oh, well, now I have to have some. <laughs> so I think maybe we need to switch that around. Maybe you need to start giving them to Louise so that I don't have mine open, see? Ah, oh, is that? Okay, is that so? Okay, because you like self-control. Okay, very good. <laughs> yes, I drink it all. Yep. All the time. I so know where you're coming from. I've got sample bottles coming in every cupboard. And I had a bit of a, right, what samples have I got? And I had 103 bottles. Oh, my gosh. And I'm just working my way through all of them. There's some I've not tasted for a little while. I'm like, oh, hello. Oh, I haven't. Oh, nice to see you again, you know? <laughs> that was really, really, yeah, I've got to get rid of some of my sample bottles. <laughs> well, you can always send them here. I'll gladly take them for you. No problem at all. We'll do that. <laughs> but I, but the tariffs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I but the tariffs and no, but you can't also send whiskey to the states is very very difficult. Yeah, no, it's really hard. But I do hope that I'm going to be over. We hope that we get back to some sense of normality in the after times. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully I'll be over in the states. I was there a lot last year, so mm-hmm. I want to be there again. Looking like next year, if if we're honest, I don't think sure. anything's going to really happen between now and the end of the year. So right. that's very much part of our plan for Tamdu and Glengoyne. Well, we will welcome a face-to-face. Yes, absolutely. No, definitely. That would be great. That would be good. Fantastic. And then hopefully, I don't know if you know about our pilot, but hopefully that will get picked up. Yeah. And then next year we will be on the road. So hopefully we can take the show. Yes, Whiskey, a Chef's Journey. That'll be interesting. Yeah. So hopefully we can show up on your doorstep Ah. and get some private tours. You'd be more than welcome. But not a Tamdu. No, we can do some private tours. We can't, we can't. No, you can, you can. I didn't say no. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you... If you, if you We're not general public, Philip. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm sure we'd be able to do something for you. I'm sure okay, we would. Okay, very good, very good. And we'd love to, we would love to. So yeah, Sweet. no, that was great. All right. Thank you for having me on and much appreciated. That'd be obviously, you're absolutely... Absolutely. Thank you, Gordon. World of Wheezy is up next. Stay with us. Hey, do 
you like whiskey, food, and adventure? I do. Hi, I'm Carrie. I'm Philip. I'm Louise. I'm the chef. Chef Louise Leonard, as in our World of Wheezy segment host here on the podcast, and Whiskey, A Chef's Journey. That chef. That's right. The project that started this very podcast. The series stars our very own chef, Louise Leonard, winner of Emmy-winning The Taste on ABC. And explores and connects the worlds of whiskey and food, city by city, country by country. Would you like to see this spirited culinary adventure on a TV near you? Well, you can by helping us finish the pilot episode through our crowdfunding campaign. For more information, including behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and incentives. And to make a pledge, visit our website, whiskeyachefsjourney.com. Now. Well, I think it's a cheers to that. Bless. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Hey, Louise, good to have you here with us this week. Today, we are going to talk about two scotches from the Speyside and Lowlands areas of uh, Scotland. So I dropped those off, and one is a 15-year and one is a 12-year. What do you think? I'm going to start off talking about the Glengoen 12 because... I have a soft spot in my heart for Glaswegians. I have never been to Scotland, but I have a good friend who's from Glasgow, and he's a complete nutter, crazy person. <laughs> um, and I just love, I, I know that someday I will get there, and I want to go into a chippy and eat all things deep fried, because these people seem to fry anything. Oh yeah. I was thinking about this when I was trying to figure out a pairing, and... I love that they're, you know, which is completely foreign to us here in the U.S., the snack called a roll and fritter, which is basically like a deep fried battered chunk of potato on a roll. I mean, Ooh. carb on carb. <laughs> like, what's not to like? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I feel like, okay, it needs hot sauce or maybe some pickles, but like, that sounds delicious. So I was thinking about doing a version of that in which I would replace the white potato with a chunk of sweet potato, oh. batter it and fry it, and then put it on a roll and add some apple cardamom chutney and then douse the whole entire thing in honey as like... Ooh. A funky, fun, sweet treat to have alongside this whiskey, and I think it would pick up some of those caramel notes in the whiskey. Um, I think so too. The I think the Glen Goyne Twelve was a little bit sweeter than the uh, Tamdu Fifteen. So I, I totally see where you're coming from with that, and that sounds like it would be really tasty. And and kind of too, I think the honey might actually match the color of that whiskey because it's a lighter, a light of, of amber. Yeah, and I think if like the roll was, you know. I don't know that I would want something soft like a brioche because I think that would be too soft and also too mm-hmm. sweet. But if it was almost like a hard shell, like I was thinking of a smaller version of a the type of roll that would be used for a torta. It's got a nice like crust on the outside and would hold all of the fried stuff inside. I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm sure if any Scottish person is listening to this, they're like, okay, this whack ass American girl, what is she talking about with this? Sweet potato and like apple cardamom chutney. And then what is this like torta roll? Like, yo, I'm American. I live in California. This is what we do. But, um, but I, I can see this. I can see this whole thing coming together and being, like, really cool. awesome. So, yeah. So what do you think of the uh, Tamdu 15? Anything delicious for that one? Well, so as for the Tamdu 15, I really wanted to play up the distinct Spanish mm. sherry oak cast notes. Um, and, like, while I was thinking about that, I thought, well, why not make a tapa? But what kind of tapa do I want? And then I was thinking about where this distillery is in Speyside. And I started looking up what fish is coming out of those waters there. Oh, yeah. Apparently, there's a lot of lobster and langoustine fisheries. Oh, yeah. Yep. And one of my favorite... Uh, Spanish tapas is a really simple langostino a la plancha and all it really is because depending on where you're at in Spain you know the langostines are really good there too and it's just simply like simply grilling some langostines dousing them with the good olive oil and some lemon and sea salt and then I was thinking like well I would probably skewer them if I was doing this and add some padrone peppers to it as well because padrone peppers are a fun little they're a fun little green pepper they're similar to the japanese shishito pepper in that like every fifth one is hot oh interesting 
Most of them are mild, but if you get a bowl of them grilled and you're snacking your way through them, you're like, oh, the sixth one was hot. Okay, now there's a party <laughs> in my mouth. So it, I think it would be very fun to have the two, of, you know, the sweetness from the langoustine, a little bit of the Patron peppers along with the scotch whiskey, I think would be delicious. Well, I'm going to let Gordon know that he should stay and, and listen to this coming up because he was excited to hear about what you were going to come up with for this. Oh, okay. Well, I hope this, I hope he's all right with my pairing. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Everything, again, everything, everything sounds delicious. And, and the things that I have made from, from our discussions um, have been delicious. So Yeah. I mean, like we're in a pandemic, can't go anywhere. So I just sit around thinking about food all day. It's a good pastime. It's a good pastime. <laughs> All right, well, I'll uh, catch up with you next week and we'll talk about our next spirit. Sounds good. For show notes on today's podcast, please visit our website at spiritsofwhiskey.com. That's whiskey with an E. We'll include links and supporting documents from today's Whiskey Chronicles, as well as tasting notes and recommendations from today's World of Wheezy. As always, you'll see upcoming topics, a guest roster, and links to past shows. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, Salon. You can become a sustaining supporter of Spirits of Whiskey by making a monthly donation. Just visit the Spirits of Whiskey page at anchor.fm. That's anchor.fm forward slash spirits dash of dash whiskey and click on the support button. And if you really like us, give us a five star rating and a review. Thank you. Spirits of Whiskey is produced by First Real Entertainment and the Center for Culinary Culture, home of the Cocktail Collection, and is available via Anchor, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and wherever fine podcasts are heard.